Good morning. <clears throat> Going through puberty, so my voice is cracking. Sorry. Uh, well, desires, we all have them, don't we? You know, it's what we, uh, what we, what we want or uh, what we wish for. That's what we're talking about today, obviously, desire. And you heard some people even say their heart's desire, expressing what your heart hopes for, right? You know, if you're here for the opening song, most of you were here for that. Um, you, you band did a great job, almost as good as the North Band, but uh, if... Grace and truth. I'm just, just telling you. Uh, seriously, if you, if you were here for the opening song, you heard the U2 song. They, they, they talk about, uh, refer to desire as dollars or protection or promise in the year of election. Because what desire represents are the things that we hope for or we, the things we want or wish for change in or the things we don't like our version of. You know, uh, some of you know me, some of you don't. And I'll just tell you a quick story about that, that for me represents desire, how desire worked in my life. I, I, uh, <clears throat> I was single. This is, I guess, about 16 years ago. And uh, I was living with a guy, a friend of mine. And, and uh, uh, he says to me one day, he says, hey, Mike, I know the perfect girl for you. Okay? And we were attending uh, Kensington Church in Detroit. It was, a, you know, the Detroit area. Big church. And they had lots of college and career-aged uh, single people. So, so we'd, we'd go to this thing, and uh, so I said, well, great. You got to introduce me sometime. So we go, and uh, I'm at this event, and he says, Mike, she's here. I said, great. So he introduces me, and I start talking to her. And uh, as I'm talking to her, I see this blonde-haired girl walk behind him, or her, you know, walk behind this girl that he introduced me to. And I'm like, okay, fantastic. Got to go. I walk over to Darren, <laughs> Darren, my roommate. I'm like, who's that? He's like, I don't know. I'm like, oh, shoot. Well, I pursued this person <laughs> and uh, made a few phone calls. And finally, I got, uh, she was throwing a party that I got invited to. She had these flyers. And uh, I, I lost the flyer. I, th- I really think I lost it accidentally. But anyway, I got her number with a chance to call her and say, hey, I, I don't have your flyer anymore. And so I started talking to her. And um, it was really interesting. Early on, we had a kind of hit and miss relationship. So... After talking to her for a little bit of time, I finally said to her, uh, I, I decided I'm going to just ask her out, right? So I, <laughs> uh, I, said, I called her and I said, hey, Susie, um, hey, would you like to play tennis sometime? And her response to me was this, yeah, sure, who's going? I'm like, uh-oh. <laughs> well, she said yeah, so I kind of got to follow through. So I respond with, well, um, j- just me and you, I was thinking, but d- uh, do you want me to pick you up or maybe let's just meet there, right? So we meet in my car as a trash bin because I'm thinking we're just going as friends, nothing's going to happen. We meet there and she says, hey, why don't I just ride with you? And I'm like, oh, you can't because my car is a wreck. And so, and our relationship kind of continued on like this. I'd ask her something and from her mind, she's trying to keep options open just in case I'm interested in her. And I'm receiving this as she's keeping options open just in case I'm interested in her, you know? And uh, so finally, and I could tell you a ton of stories like this, but what happened, finally I just said, enough. I can't take this anymore. So I'm in band, band practice. I was in a band at the time. We were rehearsing, and I, I go, you know what, guys? Hang on. Just a minute. I, need, I need five minutes, okay? And I leave practice. And I go upstairs. I grab the phone. And I call her. I say, hey, Suze, uh, this is Mike calling. And she says, hey. Hey, um, so 
I was wondering if you'd like to go out to dinner with just me alone. It would be a date. <laughs> and she says, sure. And I'm like, okay, fantastic. And that's when our relationship started. And I knew that in my heart I desired to be with this girl. And, and we kept dating. And so finally, after, after just a short period of time, I said, hey, I, so here's the way my brain works. I need you to understand something for me. Um, I don't know what we are right now. You know, with this awkward phase, you're kind of dating or whatever. I said, uh, here's, here's why I need clarification. What are we? You need to hear me. I am not interested in dating you and other people. I want you to be my girlfriend. And I want to be your boyfriend. Are you good with that? Sure. <laughs> anyway, and so we started dating. We dated for five months. We got engaged. Five months later, we were married. Ten months. It would have been sooner. But I was broke. I was a musician. Remember, I was in a band. So I saved my money like you can't believe because I desired to be with this girl. Bought an engagement ring and... Fifteen years later, we're happier than we were then. Yeah. And you know, it's really important to understand when we talk about desire something. And what that is, is that desire is a good God-given thing, right? Desire is not wrong. What you do with desire defines whether your desire is right or wrong. Okay, desire is sort of, it doesn't have a value of right or wrong. How you treat your desires is what makes it right and wrong. You know, for instance, look at New Year's resolutions. I think those are good desires, right? And they're all desires. How many of you guys made some sort of New Year's resolution? Okay, we have probably the least motivated population in the whole state of Utah. Fantastic. Hey, have a great year, guys. Well, seriously, I know many people, each new year, they make the resolution to either diet or, or eat differently or, or work out. And why do they do that? Is it because they're content with the way they look or feel? No. If you're content, you wouldn't. Maybe, that's, maybe you guys are all fantastic. I don't know. Maybe that's why you don't make New Year's resolutions. But we do that because we're not content and we desire something else. You know, let, let me ask you this. You saw the video at the beginning. And uh, if, you, if we caught you on the street with our camera and we asked you what you desired, just think about this. What would you say? Do you know what you desire? Or let, let, me, let me ask it this way. What if we asked you, what do you desire most of all? Think about that. Because here's the thing, every single decision that you make, every single one, french fries or apples, it's a value decision. Delicious, healthy. And the one that you value most wins. That's how decisions work. Let me move this into the spiritual realm for just a second. And I'm going to ask you a point blank question. Think about this. I don't need to hear you say this. What do you desire spiritually? And how much value do you give it? Do you value it above other things that can take its place? I want to tell you something that I believe is a problem with people, with us, we people who call ourselves Christian. And that problem is this. I believe we've bought the lie that mediocre dedication to Jesus 
is okay. We think that that's the norm. If you gathered everyone in a room that said, I'm a Christian, you said, okay, are you completely 100% sold out to following Jesus? And everyone that said yes went into a different room. That room would be a smaller room. Because what I believe and what K2 believes is this. Wholehearted, complete commitment to Jesus should be the norm for anyone who calls themselves a Christian. You know, everything else, everything less than that should be abnormal. You know, you'd be encouraged to know this too, that it's always been this way. It's just the way it's been. I want to take our time today together to look at what God's word tells us about being a committed follower of him. And I, I, I want to look at a couple different passages here. This first one um, is, is, there's this really interesting story in Matthew, and I'm, I'll read it in just a second, or it actually happens in three of the gospels, but the one I'm going to look at is in, in Mark, actually. And here's what happens. So Jesus is, uh, he's just gone through, if you remember, he got really angry because they were, they took the temple and they, were, they made it into a merchandising place, you know, and they were doing all this kind of crazy, kind of illegal, borderline illegal stuff. He goes through with a whip and he, he flips the tables over and he drives them all out, right? Well, if you don't remember that, that's what happened. And then what happens is there's two kinds of leaders, uh, two, two leaders at this time. There were Pharisees and Sadducees, and the Pharisees uh, and the Sadducees were, were like, uh, social, religious, cultural leaders, okay? And they were not real happy with Jesus. They, Jesus was gaining popularity and, and, and uh, a following, and they, they were kind of threatened by that. And so they come to him after this temple cleaning, and they say, hey, wait a second. Whose authority? Where'd you get that authority to do that? And he says, well, I'll tell you what. I'll answer your question if you answer mine. And here's my question. By whose authority did John the Baptist baptize? And they go, oh, no, let's huddle. And they get together and they say, okay, well, I don't know. If we, say, if we say it was by man's power, we'll have a riot because a lot of these people got baptized by John the Baptist. But if we say it's by God, then he'll say, why didn't we follow him? We're not going to answer. He says, well, I'm not answering yours then. And, then. and then they go, okay, let's try again. And they say, okay, well, should we pay taxes to Caesar? And he said, well, let me see a coin. They give him a coin. He goes, mm, whose picture is that? And he goes, Caesar. Mm, it must be his. Gives it back to him. Well, give it to him. Shoot. And then what happens is these Sadducees, those are the Pharisees. Then the Sadducees come to him. And they don't even, it's the thing about the Sadducees, they don't even believe in the afterlife. They believe there's life here on earth and then that's it. So they come to him and they ask him this. They say, okay, uh, Jesus, there's a guy and he was married and he died. And then in our culture, obviously the, the next brother in line should marry her, take take this woman as his uh, wife. And so he does, and then he dies. And then there's seven brothers total, and they all do that, and they all die. So she's still, she's a widow now. After seven marriages, in the afterlife, which we don't believe in, whose wife will she be? And he says this. You know what your problem is? You don't even understand the scripture. And instead of answering that question, he says, the problem is, clearly, if you look at the books, you can see that there is an afterlife. He doesn't even answer this question because he knows what these guys are doing. They're asking him these, these ridiculous questions like, is God, if God is all-powerful, can he make a stone that's too heavy for himself to lift? Because they're trying to trap him and put him in jail. They don't want him. They're trying to steal back the glory that he seems to be stealing from them. 
And then interestingly enough, what happens is this. One more person comes and asks him a question. He says, what's the greatest commandment? And here's what I want to look. Mark 12, 29 through 31. And what he's doing here, Jesus is quoting from the Old Testament in Deuteronomy, which were the books, the five books that these religious leaders would say had credibility. And he says this. The most important one, Jesus answered, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord the God, your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this. Love your neighbors as yourself. There's no greater commandment, greater, no, no commandment greater than these. It's almost as if this fourth guy, and Jesus' response is, the guy says, hey, that's a good answer. And he says, you know what? You're on the right track. And the difference is this guy was asking a sincere question to understand what it meant to be a follower of God. He really had an honest question. And it's almost, I wonder if when he asked that, if he was asking it so these other guys could hear, because none of them love God, love others. They weren't concerned about finding out more about God or loving God. And they certainly weren't loving Jesus because they were trying to trap him and throw him in jail. It's almost as if he asks this question in their presence so they can hear. I don't know if he did that. I'm just, just conjecture there. But the issue is this, that Jesus was aware of what is at stake and what competes for our heart. And you know what the answer is? Everything. Everything is in competition for your heart and your desire. 1 John chapter 2, verse 15 through 17. And this is the New Living Translation. It says, Do not love this world, nor the things it offers you. For when you love the world, you do not have the love of the Father in you. For the world offers only a craving for physical pleasure, a craving for everything we see, and pride in our achievements and possessions. These are not from the Father, but are from this world. These are the things competing for our heart. And this world is fading away along with everything the people crave. But anyone who does what pleases God will live forever. Some translations call this the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. The physical pleasures, everything we see, and our position. Everything is in competition for your desire in your heart. And you can't let them compete. And the way, Jesus is saying, the way to keep that from happening is by giving him your entire heart. Over the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at loving with our mind and with our will and how to love others first. Today, we're going to look at what it means to love him with our entire heart. And I think that there are two things when I thought about this. What does it mean to love him with all your heart? And they're kind of simple, but, but when I actually spent more time thinking about it, I realized it wasn't quite as simple as I thought. First of all, to love him with all our heart means this. You love him with all of your heart. See why they gave me the microphone? <laughs> but the second thing, and I want to look at this just really quickly because it ties in. And we're going to be talking about this a little more in a couple weeks. But the second part of loving him with all of your heart is loving all of him with your heart. You see, when we buy the lie that mediocre dedication to Jesus is okay, 
rather than believing that complete dedication to following him is normal for Christ followers and anything else is abnormal. We start to pick and choose the pieces of God we like and create the God that suits us best and turn him into a condiment that we can sprinkle on when it's convenient to bring the desired flavor of the moment to our lives. He serves us. But we don't know him fully, we don't love him, and we use him. You know, I don't want to jump on the pile here because I know Tiger Woods is really having a rough go of it right now. But I have to say this. It will be difficult to make the argument at this point that he loved his wife with all of his heart or loved all of his wife with his heart. Or marriage for that matter. I'm sure he liked parts of it. Probably some specific parts of his wife I'm sure he liked. <laughs> I'm sure he liked parts of marriage. Else, why else would he have gotten married, right? But he didn't like the part that required commitment. He didn't like the part that required honor. He, he obviously didn't care for her heart. He treated her like a condiment. <laughs> Sprinkled it on when it was convenient. And in the end, he lost not only the things he liked or didn't like about her, he lost the things he liked about her too. And loving all of God means embracing the parts that we like as well as the things that we don't. And that can be hard. How about the part, you know, where, where uh, he asks you to do things that require you to change your lifestyle? Do we like those parts? I have a friend, not someone that lives here in town, but some another part of the country, and he loves God as much as he can keep living his life the way he wants to. How, how about this? How about, do you love the part how God gave people free will? Because now we have evil in the world, and we can't all get along. Do you love that part? How about the part where God asks us to resolve issues with each other rather than talk to someone else about it? You like that part? How about the part where we ask you to forgive people? And I'm sure you guys could all create your own list, so I'm not going to spend a ton of time talking about that. But I've got to tell you this. If you're waiting to like or even understand every part of God completely, before you follow him completely, you'll never make that decision because it's called faith. I, and I've got to tell you this. If you can understand God completely, you need to find a new God because you, you don't have a very good God. He's only as smart as you, right? Just telling you. But not only does it mean to love all of God, it means to love God with all your heart. And this is the part I really want to look at. And what I want to look at is the life of King Solomon. Now, we know a few things about him. We'll use him as a test case. And we know a few things about him. He was the wisest king. He's called the wisest king, the richest king. They said uh, in um, Kings, I think it says... He received as gifts from other nations, on average, per year, 25 tons of gold as gifts every year. It's pretty rich, just in case you didn't know. He's peace-loving. He was at peace with other nations. He wasn't at war like David was. He built the temple of God. He's probably the greatest leader Israel had for most of his reign. I want to read 1 Kings Chapter 11, verses 1 through 7. It's kind of long, but hang with me here, okay? Because this kind of identifies 
a problem for Solomon in light of all these other things. Now, King Solomon loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughter, which he married Pharaoh's daughter. This is kind of interesting. He married Pharaoh's daughter because it made an alliance with that country, with that nation. Peace. Seemed like a good thing, right? But besides Pharaoh's daughter, he married women from Moab, Ammon, Eden, or Edom, Sidon, and from among the Hittites. The Lord had clearly instructed the people of Israel, you must not marry them because they will turn your hearts to their gods. Yet Solomon insisted on loving them anyway. He had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines. And I think that many of these women that he married were probably to bring peace treaties between, not all, 700, I don't think there were 700 nations back then, but to make peace treaties between Israel and the other nations. Seemed like a wise thing to do, didn't it? 300 concubines. And in fact, they did turn his heart away from the Lord. In Solomon's old age, they turned his heart to worship other gods instead of being completely faithful to the Lord his God as his father David had been. Solomon worshipped Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, uh, the goddess of sens- sensuality was that god, and Molech, baby sacrifice, the detestable god of the Ammonites. Uh, in this way, Solomon did what was evil in the Lord's sight. He refused to follow the Lord completely as his father David had done. On the Mount of Olives, in east of Jerusalem, he even built a pagan shrine for Chemish, the detestable god of Moab, and another for Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. Solomon built such shrines for all his foreign wives to use for burning incense and sacrificing to their gods. So the wisest king... One little thing. He just needed to marry women from other nations, which he was instructed not to do. And if you keep reading in this chapter, what you find is that because of his refusal to give his entire heart to God and love all of God, the kingdom is ripped from his hands. This is what happens when we buy the lie that mediocre dedication to following Jesus is okay. In his final failing years, he also writes a a book that's included in the Old Testament. It's called Ecclesiastes. It's 12 chapters, a short little book. And it's, it's, it's a very, very sad book for me to read. Because the greatest king, the wisest king, the richest king, the king who conquered everything, in the end, writes, Eat, drink, and be merry because you're going to die tomorrow. See, he was the leader of the nation of Israel, which was on the verge of splitting in two because they were at odds with each other, as was his heart at odds with itself. He was the wealthiest king to ever live. He's closing in on death. Built the temple of God, which he's no longer devoted to, and nor are his people. The wisest king to ever live, and he can't make sense of life for himself. And this is a paraphrase. You're not going to see this on the screen. This is, again, what I call the micro-rut version of the first six verses of the final chapter of Ecclesiastes, where he's gone through and he's talked about all of his accomplishments and how now, at this point in his life, he feels like it means nothing. And he was very accomplished. And this is not like a flip-off-the-cuff funny thing. This is actually true. This is what he says He's toothless. He's going blind. He's losing his hearing, quavering voice, afraid of heights and falling. 
That's probably that broken hip syndrome thing. He's white-haired, withered, no sexual desire, standing at death's door. That's the state of mind that he writes Ecclesiastes in. And I find this book so challenging because the wisest man to ever live could not figure out that his partial pursuit, his partial, or maybe it was his all-inclusive pursuit of God, is the very thing that is causing him dismay on his deathbed. After all, he didn't actually live apart from God. He lived with God and God wasn't enough for him. In his closing statement on life, he admits that his pursuit of all of the lovely things of this world, women, power, riches, position, is what captured his heart. And he's disappointed that it didn't mean more. No mention of his chase after God or the spiritual things. You know, he practically earned American citizenship with this lifestyle, right? Get it all. Obey your thirst. You can have it all. See, Solomon conquered everything he set out to conquer except for one thing. You know what that was? His heart. Everything but his heart. His heart conquered him. He makes a closing statement in the last two verses of this 12-chapter book of Ecclesiastes. Where he says, fear God and follow his commands. But you know what? It wasn't even true of his own life. How could he even believe that? Or how could the people that heard that be expected to believe it when it's not true of him? So let me bring this back to you and me right here, right now. Sad story of Solomon, right? Let's all go on our merry way and not live like that. The question we all need to ask ourselves is this. Have I bought the lie that mediocre dedication to Jesus Christ is okay? And am I allowing altars to abide in my life? This is really weird. I, this, this off the cuff here, just an honest moment. I, I uh, was, as I was preparing this message, I, uh, I thought I was doing pretty good, you know. And when I really started to analyze if I had altars in my life, I realized, shoot, yes, I do. Because that requires me to make a value decision, right? Am I going to act on that? Or am I going to give my whole heart to God? What's an altar? You want to know what an altar is? I don't even know. I don't even know what an altar is. Well, good. I'm here to help you. Here's what an altar is. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and pride of life. This, anything. It could be an activity. It could be an attitude. It could be a possession, a relationship, a habit, even a place. Anything that tempts us to turn our hearts from God is an altar. Anything that competes for our heart's desire for God and holds higher value than him, is an altar. Now again, I started today talking about uh, 
Susie and how I desired her and I ran after her. And so you could say, well, was that not an altar? And no, it wasn't. It really, really wasn't. And here's why. Here's something I noticed. I started thinking about this. She, as I got to know her more, I realized that she turned my heart toward God. She made me want to be more like him. And if you're, maybe if you're in a relationship where you feel like this is tension between this person who's trying to pull you away from God, I'm going to tell you right now it's an altar. And we all have them, I believe. Here's a, I want to share with you another story. When I was in high school, um, I had a youth pastor, Pastor Shin. It's kind of an unfortunate name. Pastor Shin. And I don't really remember, I had him for like a year or something. And um, I don't really remember a whole lot about him. But I do remember one thing. You guys have probably heard this verse many times, Psalm 37, 4. It says this. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he'll give you the desires of your heart. Don't you love that? I love that verse. Because if I desire a new car, and I delight myself in the Lord, bang! Bigger house, bang! And I was talking to Pastor Shin, and I said, I don't really understand that, because I don't really think that's the way it works. Here's what he said to me. This is a life-changing explanation of a simple verse. For me. He said, you know, Mike, for me, this is really interesting because he, he had just had his first child, very first child. And he says to me, Mike, when my son was born, didn't know anything about this child, right? And I held him for the first time, and I my heart was in love with this child. And immediately following that thought, he thought, oh no, I don't know if I love God more than this. Following that thought, his next thought was, I need to love him less so that I can love God more. And immediately following that was this part that changed the way I think about loving God with all my heart. It's not about loving anything less. Love is not a finite emotion. It grows. And the point is, what he said is, you're not, I shouldn't love my son less. This is a great example of how much my heart needs to love God. See, we love the second part. He'll give us the desires of our heart. The first part's not so great. Delight ourselves in him, which means we should be desiring the things that he desires. You see, that's the point of the verse. If we loved God with all of our heart, the things that we desire would be the things he desires for us. It'd be a whole lot less about the new car and the bigger house than it would be for the things that make us like him. And he's willing to give them to us. I want to... We're going to close out here. And you guys all have a card uh, on the chair when you, you, when you came in. 
as best I can tell, it's really oversimplified, but it's me, so that's what you get. Each of us falls into one of three categories, as again, in my mind. The first one is this. We talked about last week, understanding God's heart, which is a heart of love. He loves us. The first group of people that could be here this morning are the people who you've yet to receive God's love and know how deeply he loves you. Again, we talked about this last week. For you, I want to challenge you to take that initial step. Again, if you're waiting for everything to make sense and understand everything, you're never going to make the step because it's called faith. And I want to encourage you, take that first step and understand what it means to be loved by God. Psalm 34, 8. You're not going to see this on here. This is my prayer for you. Taste and see that the Lord is good and blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. If you haven't taken that first step, I want to encourage you to take that step, to taste and see that he's good. The second group is the flip side of that or the tail end of that. And if you can say in your heart, you know what, I feel like I've really, really kept short accounts. I've trusted him, I've followed him, I've tried to just, you know, eliminate sin and altars that have crept up in my life. Praise God for you. Man, I, can, I cannot be happier for you. Keep that happening. And I'm going to ask you, I would pray this for you. This is Psalm 19, verse 12 and 13. My prayer is this. Who can discern his errors? Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful, willful sins. May they not rule over me. Then I will be blameless and innocent of great, great transgression. The third group is somewhere in between those. Maybe you say, I'm a follower of Christ, but I think as you're talking today, you might be onto something. I might actually be letting altars abide. My prayer for you is this. Psalm 24, verse 3 through 5. Who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift his soul to an idol or swear by what is false. Who doesn't lift his soul to an idol. He'll receive blessing from the Lord and vindication from his Savior. I'm going to ask the band to come forward here. And they're going to play for just a minute. I want you to get out that little card. It's on your seat. And I'm going to pray as we close out this morning. We're going to end this, you know, and I'm going to end speaking here. And we're going to enter into time of musical worship. And here's what I want you to do. We're going to take just a minute. Just in silence. The band's just going to play for just a second. And I want to challenge every single person that's here today, including the band who obviously isn't going to be writing, but to just to take a minute 
and look through your life and ask yourself, do I have idols that are abiding, that are competing for my devotion in my heart? Do I have some things that are, I love God and, and the two don't match? Do you have a relationship or an attitude or anything that we could say is an idol and you're letting it abide in your heart? And I just, here's what I want you to do. Just take a second. And I've given you the three prayers depending on where you find yourself. I want you to close your eyes. I'm going to pray those three, three verses again. And then the band's going to play for just a second before they lead us into worship. And then during worship, here's what's going to happen. And I don't want you to do this because it's popular or because you see someone else do it. And quite frankly, I don't care if no one comes forward because it doesn't really matter to me. But it does matter to you. If today is the day you want to take the idols that are living alongside your dedication to Jesus Christ, I want you to write that idol specifically on your card. Come forward and just drop it in this stupid basket. And say, today, that idol's gone. And I confess to you, I put you back in your rightful place. And I give you my whole heart. We do that any time during worship. And again, I just say, don't do this because other people do this for your own soul. Just pray with me if you would. Oh, Lord Jesus, thank you for loving us so much. Thank you for giving us the example of what it means to be loved. Thank you for letting us tangibly feel your love in our lives. Pray for those who have not yet taken the first step to follow you. And I pray that they would taste and see that you are good. And that they are blessed when they take refuge in you. If anyone's here this morning that wants to take that step and they feel like they need some help, I'm here. I will gladly pray with you this morning. Sure, Bradwood and the band would love the opportunity to pray with you. We have a prayer room back here. Secondly, for those people who feel like, God, I'm living rightfully before you. Praise God for them. And again, I pray, who can discern his errors? Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. Then I'll be blameless and innocent of transgression. And for everyone here who calls themselves a follower of Christ, if you've bought the lie that mediocre dedication to Jesus is okay, put that idol away today. And I pray that who may stand in his holy place, he who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift his soul to idols. Jesus, lead us, guide us, change our hearts, make us pure before you. Make us a clean, fully devoted follower of you and understand that what the norm is, is loving you with all of our heart.